to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on politics, history, and culture in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. It was a time of rapid, terrifying, and exhilarating change, a time of scientific breakthroughs, mass politics, endless scandals, and efforts at reform, a time when new groups of Americans fought for, and sometimes won, their right to participate fully in American life, while others did their best to try and keep America as it was or as they imagined it to be. With few heroes, many villains, great geniuses, and piercing questions, many of which still trouble us today. Welcome to Stumbling Colossus, a regular part of Avi's conversational corner covering the gilded and progressive ages of the United States, from the end of the Civil War to the end of the First World War. You can find this and other episodes of Avi's conversational corner at Google Podcasts and on Amazon Music. This episode's topic, the Gilded Supreme Court. The Gilded Age Supreme Court, when it's discussed or thought of at all, is generally dismissed as a reactionary court beholden to big business, radically libertarian, but somehow nevertheless contemptuous of the rights of the little guy. Cases like Lochner v. New York striking down labor laws and Plessy v. Ferguson making segregation constitutional seem to confirm this assumption. But is the story really that simple? Or were the conservative Supreme Courts, conservative in the sense of that era, more nuanced and sometimes even revolutionary in their thinking about law and society? With me to discuss these questions is Professor David Bernstein of George Mason University. David, welcome. Thank you, Avi. It's a pleasure to have you on. So before we get into specific cases, theories, and so forth, uh, why don't you... uh, explain to me and to my listeners uh, what what were the types of people to be appointed to the Supreme Court uh, where did they come from where were they taught uh, what positions did they serve and what were the ma- what were the major figures that stood out to help shape uh, the court in this period as in most eras the justices of the Supreme Court uh, were prominent lawyers obviously usually, They were judges, but sometimes they weren't. The way to become a Supreme Court justice is to become well-known as a sound judge or a sound thinker about law within your uh, party, uh, to make the right connections in your party, uh, and to be in the right place at the right time in the sense that the president who appoints you uh, thinks that it will, for whatever reason, be politically advantageous to appoint you as opposed to somebody else. Uh, with quality, obviously, a factor, too, because of their uh, legacy. But I think one thing we have to recognize about the Gilded Age Supreme Court is that the parties themselves were not ideologically divided the way they are today, where there was one liberal party or left party and one more conservative or right party, that there were more libertarian or conservative-oriented thinkers in the Democratic Party, and less so, and the same thing was true in the Republican Party. So what you see in Supreme Court decisions is you often have uh, decisions where a mix of Republican and Democratic justices are on one side uh, in the majority, and a mix of Republican and Democratic justices are on the other side. Interesting. Uh, Following up on that a bit, uh, nowadays... um, People tend to watch who is going to be appointed and who's going to be nominated to the Supreme Court with incredible interest and incredible attention. It sounds from what you say that this wasn't as big an issue or as burning an issue 
uh, in the Gilded Age in terms of politically and political attention as it was today, or am I uh, misreading that? Yeah, I think that's fair. There were occasional controversies over appointments, but in general, um, you know, you have you can have a situation as dramatically um, strange from <laughs> dramatically strange isn't, a, isn't an actual phrase, but as, as weird from our modern perspective as Woodrow Wilson in uh, in during the World War One era, the nineteen tens, appointing both James McReynolds, who was considered uh, the most reactionary justice to sit on the Supreme Court in the 20th century, and Louis Brandeis, one of the great progressives, within a span of like a year. Because the Democratic Party had different factions, and Brandeis was in uh, the more traditionally progressive faction, and uh, McReynolds was not, but he was at least known as a strong antitrust enforcer, so the progressives had no particular beef with him before he became on the court, but the fact that one was generally conservative and one was generally progressive wasn't itself a problem because, um, uh, to Wilson, because they both represented factions of the party. Now, Brandeis himself was a bit controversial, a little bit because he was Jewish, but mostly because his more left-wing progressive views on economics uh, were out of the mainstream of what had been American constitutional discourse until that time. Okay, so setting that up with the more uh, heterogeneous, um, I guess a little bit more laid back, only a few principles holding, not rather than thinking that they have to rule the, rule the right way or think the right way on several different issues. What were, in the Gilded Age, the prevailing um, ways of thinking about law, about American constitutional law, and how it should apply to society in terms of, I guess, not just people who, the people who, the different people who sat on the Supreme Court, but maybe just uh, uh, American uh, courts in general. Like, because we nowadays talk, once again, we talk about very concrete theories. We talk about originalism and we talk about living constitution. How did they, what were the different approaches then? So until the progressive era, until the early 20th century, there was a basic consensus among legal thinkers in the United States that American law is based in some way on natural law and natural rights. This doesn't mean that people thought that courts had carte blanche to decide that a law uh, conflicted with their notion of what natural law, in other words, law that is just discoverable through reason uh, and that all reasonable people would agree to suggest, or that they could put their own concepts of natural rights into the uh, Constitution, but it did mean that people thought that the underlying basis of the Constitution was a system to preserve liberty, preserving liberty both by limiting federal power, uh, by to some extent limiting uh, the state's police power once that became part of the Constitution under the 14th Amendment, and more generally that the most significant rights were the rights uh, to liberty of contract and to property rights, uh, because without those rights, the underlying f liberty-oriented foundation of the United States would be lost, and that was reinforced by the conflict over slavery, because 
a big rationale for being an abolitionist or anti-slavery is people have the right to their own labor. And if people have the right to their own labor, what right does government have to come in and tell you what to do? Again, these were the general background principles that people shared. How that translated precisely into constitutional law was what was really more controversial. Okay, you mentioned up to the progressive era, so you so that obviously led to a change. What challenge or changes did progressives suggest or propose or indeed put into practice? So the progressive lawyers uh, who are mostly, the elite lawyers are mostly centered around Harvard Law School, they rejected American natural law and natural rights tradition. Many of them were educated in Germany where what we call legal positivism was uh, in vogue. And legal positivism basically says whatever the government says the law is, that's the law. There's no such thing as you know natural law, natural rights. It's all about uh, what the government, whatever is written in the statute books. And moreover, uh, law is really all about power. It's just another means of politics. There's no underlying legal theory that's somehow separated from politics. So uh, the progressives therefore believe that rather than role of the courts to be in some way to preserve immutable principles uh, of the American founding and so forth, that the job of judges is, is instead to accommodate society as it evolves. So this is a, really a huge change and it's a change that even with a much more conservative Supreme Court nowadays and saying the Warren Court we still are living with, that the idea is that, you know, judges' role is that lawyers don't have any sort of special role in being sort of guardians of, of our liberties or the underlying foundational basis of the country. Instead, uh, the role of lawyers in the courts is to figure out what the law says and enforce it in some way, maybe with some you know, uh, residual protection of the most important fundamental rights. But conceptually speaking, what this means in practice is that people conceive of the American constitutional system uh, as being islands of liberty of liberties in a sea of government power rather than islands of government power in a sea of liberty. Okay. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, in your book, Rehabilitating Lochner, which we will be discussing in depth uh, soon, uh, you note that while uh, the tradition and bolstered by ideas of due process in the 14th Amendment and other things like that, uh, courts and, and jurists generally believed in the idea of natural rights and natural law, you note that the Supreme Court itself was actually quite reluctant uh, to strike down laws which it believed that were within the prerogative of the state's police power. In other words, even if they didn't like it, they, never, they nevertheless uh, were hands-off about it. So what is the, if I may be blunt, what's the functional difference between that and, say, the attitude today? So we really had two things going on, right? Because there's two different types of legislation that might come before the Supreme Court. One is legislation from Congress, and the court, on the one hand, was kind of jealous of the idea that Congress does have limited power. On the other hand, uh, we were not yet in the same kind of era of judicial supremacy that we later adopted starting in really the 1950s. So the court said, well, you know, whatever we may think of congressional legislation, Congress is a co-equal 
branch that's also a constitutional actor, so we should be loath to invalidate laws, even if we're quite skeptical of them. They became uh, a little bit less skeptical, of, of, a little less reluctant to invalidate laws as they saw like a rising tide of populism and socialism in the 1890s, but their default view was we don't get too involved. Similarly, with the uh, state's police power, uh, you know, the federal courts didn't really have much authority over the states until potentially the 14th Amendment was passed and gave textual support for the idea that there are general principles of liberty, privilege or immunities, equal protection that are enforceable against the states. So uh, one of the major issues after the Civil War was to what extent did the Civil War combined with the 14th Amendment uh, change the federal state balance such that federal courts under, acting under the federal constitution had the authority to intervene with state legislation. And even some of the, so some of the justices who are on the more libertarian side still, you know, libertarians want limits on states' police powers, but they also want federalism because they understand that concentrating power in any sort of uh, body is dangerous. So there was a tension there. And similarly, there were those who were uh, more sympathetic to a, a larger national role uh, in general, like in raising taxes and having a stronger military, but were not sympathetic to invalidating state legislation because they thought that would go too far. So there were these conflicting intellectual trends that were fighting with each other. And again, there was no, there was no clear ideological um, basis for one or the other because, again, like for example, if the federal government starts invalidating a lot of state uh, economic regulation, on the one hand, it's reducing government power, by the other hand, it's undermining federalism. Okay, and given those intellectual tensions and clear legal issues, um, what was it about the, the, the case, the famous case of Lochner v. New York that led the court uh, by a split decision to say, you know what, uh, we've had it, we've, we've debated about this, but this, this law, this goes way too far, we're putting our foot down. Yeah, so there are different factions on the court. There were, at the time, there were basically two justices, Peckham and um, uh, Rufus Peckham from New York and his colleague uh, Justice Brewer, who I believe was from Kansas, and they took a very narrow view of the state's police power. And they consistently lost, seven to two. They usually didn't bother writing dissents, but you have all these cases where it would just say Peckham J and Brewer J dissenting on things like regulating stock options, regulating Sunday work, regulating the hours of people in mining towns and so forth. Uh, and so the side that wanted to limit the states really kept losing. So the question is what's different about Lochner versus New York? And I think uh, there, there is a little bit of intellectual change in Lochner, which is that the court had expressed in the past uh, sort of vaguely in dicta that the right to liberty of contract is a really important fundamental right, but it was in Lochner where they first really focused on that issue under the Due Process Clause rather than focusing on whether 
uh, the law contained arbitrary classifications, which had been the focus of most of the earlier cases. Uh, so to move from a situation where basically due process and equal protection were almost coextensive to due process protecting sort of libertarian rights against the government separately from equal protection. So that, so that intellectual change is what it, you know, may have had some influence. But I think importantly, Lochner was just considered by the swing justices, the ones that weren't generally voting with Brewer and Peckham, uh, to be just uh, a law that went uh, too far in a variety of ways. It was a law that banned bakery owners from employing their bakers more than 10 hours a day. And it was the only hours law that the Supreme Court ever invalidated. And the question is why. And in my opinion, uh, the, question, the reason is because the law had provisions that, that made it much more draconian uh, and much more seemingly a violation of liberty than similarly situated laws. For one thing, it had no provision for overtime. I'm not aware of any other law except the New Jersey law that was also invalidated by New Jersey courts. Uh, no other maximum hours laws I've ever seen don't have a provision for overtime. So in the case of Lochner, you could not even request your baker to work more than 60 hours no matter how much you're willing to pay that baker. And relatedly, if you violated the law, rather than there being a standard civil fine, as there would be today, if you have your employees work more than 40 hours and don't pay them overtime, you could actually go to jail. So this is a pretty draconian hours law in that it would not even let workers voluntarily work more hours for more pay and violations in, would make you go to jail. So I think that the swing justice felt, well, if we're gonna be that draconian, you have to have a really good justification for the law. The justification New York State gave was, well, this is important for the health of bakers and for the health of the bread-baking public. But as Justice Peckham said in his opinion, the relationship between this law and the health of the public is pretty um, unclear, uh, very you know, speculative, very indirect at best. As far as the health of the bakers goes, uh, the lawyers for Joseph Lochner, the baker, submitted evidence that baking, uh, bakers had the same mor mortality rates as ordinary professions like being a lawyer or a clerk or a blacksmith or whatever, and the other side didn't really have any evidence to counter it. So in the absence of any health evidence, uh, and having such a draconian law, I think the justices were skeptical, and it did not help that even though New York defended the law as this labor law meant to protect, sorry, it's this health law meant to protect the health of bakers and the health of the baking public, they actually delegated enforcement of the law to the Labor Department of New York, not to the Health Department. So that made the court suspicious that while they were claiming it was a health law, that that was a phony rationale. Okay. Uh, in, your, in, in your book, you make the argument that there was a strange paradoxical uh, response to, um, to the ruling. Uh, on the one hand, uh, as opposed to later mythology that everybody opposed it and everybody hated it, although there were certainly certain people who hated it, including uh, Theodore Roosevelt, um, that it kind of was not really followed up on immediately. On the other hand, you note that the concept of the use of the due process clause of the 14th Amendment led to some very interesting and even potentially very, even revolutionary uh, rulings later on uh, regarding uh, race relations uh, and uh, women's rights. I thought I was wondering if you could elaborate on that. Yeah, so on, on your first point, um, 
Lochner, you know, uh, Richard Epstein of NYU Law School has been known to say that Loch, that they call it the Lochner era, but there was really a Lochner moment because uh, at least for the next 18 years, the Supreme Court was still pretty deferential to state exercises of police power, including, again, in maximum hours cases, all the laws were upheld. But uh, nevertheless, Lochner was significant, I think, uh, in particular for the reason I mentioned. It was really the first case where the Supreme Court, when talking about the li- the part of the 14th Amendment that protects liberty from being taken away without due process, not only focused on the fundamental right to individual liberty itself, rather than on whether the law was somehow arbitrarily singling out certain people, but then actually uh, went ahead and said the law was unconstitutional. So that opened up all sorts of other possibilities for litigants, uh, now, you mentioned uh, in your introduction how people who criticize the court of this era often talk about Lochner versus New York in the same breath as Plessy versus Ferguson, Plessy being a case from 1896 that upheld railroad segregation law in uh, Louisiana. But in fact, uh, from the perspective of a lot of the jurists at the time, the two cases, Lochner and Plessy, turned out to be at odds because Plessy gave a very broad scope to the police power. It strongly, uh, it has strong presumption that the state was acting reasonably when it invaded people's rights, really, to force them to segregate, whereas Lochner had the opposite perspective. And then pretty much immediately after Lochner, uh, litigants trying to fight segregation laws pointed out the conflict between Lochner and Plessy, that Lochner said that the government really has to come up with a uh, especially persuasive police power justification for a law, and Plessy gave a strong presumption in favor of government power. So in 1908, there's a case called Berea College versus Kentucky, which involved a law that closed down the only integrated college in Kentucky, and uh, Berea College argued that this isn't violating our liberty of contract, it's violating uh, our right to, to pursue education and to educate uh, black children and white children together, black adults relates to college, and um, the other side said, oh no, any segregation law is inherently reasonable and there are no limits to the police power with regard to segregation. And the Supreme Court didn't really know what to do, so it actually punted and avoided the constitutional issue entirely and rely on uh, a kind of bogus rationale based solely on corporate law. And then nine years later, there was a case involving residential segregation where um, the plaintiffs argued that Kentucky in forbidding black people from buying land on majority white blocks and vice versa was violating both liberty and property rights. And in that case, the Supreme Court actually ruled nine to zero in favor of the plaintiffs. And in both Berea and Buchanan versus Worley, the plaintiffs did in fact cite Lochner among other cases. So that was a pretty dramatic uh, change from the court having been almost entirely deferential until then to regulation of race to suddenly ruling 9-0 uh, that at least one type of racial segregation law was unconstitutional. That's fascinating. Uh, and I'd like to follow that up with, uh, you mentioned in the uh, in the epilogue of the book about how, on the one hand, uh, justices that were appointed uh, after FDR's uh, great uh, judicial revolution of basically appointing all of his people who were... Uh, uh, all of his people and flipping the court and uh, that continued. You note that you raised the possibility, at least, that there might have been like 
I guess, a road not taken where uh, the principles at least planted in Lochner and which started to grow and uh, which started to bear fruit uh, later on could have, in theory, in its own way, also have led to uh, the kind of th- uh, the kind of desegregation uh, that resulted from uh, Brown v. Border. Am I misunderstanding? One way of uh, one way of conceiving of what Jim Crow was doing in the South was that it was a three-legged monopoly system uh, on behalf of whites and against blacks. The three legs being private violence, uh, threat you know threats and so forth that uh, wasn't inhibited by the local police and sometimes was encouraged even or collaborated with private discrimination and uh, the government and the gov- and the government in also requiring discrimination or segregation. So the way we've handled that his, uh, as a matter of history is we uh, have federal supervision uh, of state police forces and constitutional remedies against uh, the government when they engage in violence or don't prevent violence. We overturned state segregation discrimination laws, and we had the government massively intervene in markets in general after the New Deal. As part of that intervention, they also were uh, eventually came to inhibit discrimination through the 1964 Civil Rights Act and other laws against African Americans. An alternative historical possibility would be that if the New Deal hadn't dramatically increased the role of the federal government in economic regulation, we could have done without uh, the civil rights laws that um, require non-discrimination. One reason you needed those laws was that the government was going around giving monopoly power to labor unions, to businesses that it favored, so you, you really needed to counteract that to some extent. And the government could have instead said, uh, okay, the you know, federal government could have said, we will go, we, we did this even in the 1860s and 70s, we could certainly do it in the 1960s, we could monitor and prevent discrimination by the government, we could inhibit or prevent uh, the government's, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the laws that require discrimination or overturn those laws, and then we can let uh, se- segregation and discrimination go away via market forces. Once, we, once two legs of the three-legged uh, monopoly stool were gone, the monopoly really wouldn't be able to stand. And related to all that is it's really important that African Americans get voting rights as they did in 1965 so that they have some say in the local government so they could, you know, the federal government can't monitor everything so the, so the local governments can't be abusing them. And that was a, uh, that it's not an attractive proposition perhaps in a situation where the government's gaining so much power that it gets to pick winners or losers. White people will have a lot more political power for quite a long time than black people do. So, by, so if you don't have some countervailing uh, laws uh, prohibiting discrimination, things will get even worse. And I wrote a book that was published in 2001 suggesting that the New Deal, for example, did make things worse because it cartelized the economy without providing any protections for African Americans. So if you're going to cartelize the economy, you have to protect minorities. If you're not going to cartelize the economy, but you're willing to crack down on violence and discriminatory legislation, Jim Crow will wither away uh, in, uh, on its own, from its own uh, force, or at least one could argue that. So that would have been the alternative civil rights vision, freedom of association, equal protection of the law, non-discrimination by government. Uh, but that's not the road we took, obviously. Okay. And uh, given uh, these, uh, these possibilities, whether they would have happened or not, and uh, given uh, the history, um, 
what can we, not just uh, legal scholars and, uh, and let's face it, nerds and uh, people who debate on the right and left, what can the average, what can the average American citizen who's interested in their country's history take away from Lochner and what might we uh, learn from it or perhaps even implement from it today? Well, I think one of the most interesting things about Lochner that is sort of papered over even in sophisticated constitutional law classes because it doesn't fit the narrative is I mentioned that Lochner was really the first case to both announce the Fourth Amendment protects fundamental rights against government, uh, but also um, actually enforce that provision and overturn state law. In the 19, it's often seen as, well, that's just economic due process and doesn't have any real relevance to today when the court no longer strictly protects economic rights. But in 1923, uh, the Supreme Court ruled in a case called Meyer versus Nebraska that under the due process clause, the state could not ban the teaching of foreign languages. Two years later, it ruled under the 14th Amendment that the state could not uh, ban the existence of private schools entirely. Both of those cases relied on Lochner, both in the briefs and in the holdings. Uh, around the same time, in 1923, the Supreme Court held in Gitlow versus New York that while uh, in that particular case we are upholding a restriction on freedom of expression, freedom of expression is also a fundamental right protected by the Due Process Clause. And over the subsequent decades, the court went on to protect almost all of the rights in the Bill of Rights under the 14th Amendment and a few other fundamental rights, like the right to marry, the right to have uh, to procreation, which includes the right to abortion, uh, the right eventually the same to um, raise your children to some extent as you see fit. Uh, well, the way the court did that was by saying that Meyer and Pierce and Gitlow, the 1920s cases, were correct, but saying, well, those had nothing to do with Lochner. We hate Lochner, but those cases were uh, fine and they were reinterpreted. Meyer and Pierce were reinterpreted either as privacy cases or as freedom of religion cases or as right to raise your children cases, uh, and Gitlow is reinterpreted as a case incorporating the First Amendment, which it did not directly do. It didn't talk about the First Amendment, only talked about due process. In that way, even when liberals took over the Supreme Court after Franklin Roosevelt uh, and ditched Lochner, they actually kept a very important fundamental aspect of Lochner, which is that the 40th Amendment's due process clause, first of all, protects uh, individual rights directly, not just you know via equal protection uh, and arbitrary classification, but directly protects certain fundamental rights. And moreover, that when we think a very important right is involved, the government has to come up with a better explanation than when it's just engaging in ordinary you know, uh, government activity. Uh, of course, the standards evolved. It's not, it's, what a fundamental right means today isn't exactly the same as what it meant in 1905. The, 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 the methodology of deciding whether the government has stepped too far has changed. We don't talk about police powers much anymore. But the basic idea that um, we had this moment of uh, uncertainty when the old court, the pre-New Deal court, was on its way out and the new court under Roosevelt was on its way in, was the court going to fundamentally um, withdraw from being the final arbiter of constitutionality of state legislation 
uh, or you want to put it a slightly different way, where they're going to be the final guardian of fundamental rights uh, when the legislative process failed to do so? And the answer is, actually, while they shifted their focus from contract and property and, to some extent, freedom of speech and whatnot, to more broadly things that modern liberals like, they kept the basic underlying idea that the Due Process Clause is the backstop for fundamental liberties of the American people. So Lochner lives on uh, in that way. Great. You've definitely given myself and my uh, listeners a lot to chew on and uh, definitely learned a lot about the Gilded Age Supreme Court. Professor Bernstein, thank you for coming on. Uh, thanks so much for having me, uh, and I hope uh, we can talk again sometime. Mm-hmm.